0: I come to your community and you're poor, even though you're poor, you're still thriving. Mm. You're going to farm, you're taking care of yourself, you're showering. It's tough, but you're pushing. Mm. It might be as tough as anything, but yet still you're trying your best to push. If I come and I make everything absolutely free for you, mm. I tell you, you don't ever have to worry about doing anything to keep these services. Mm. You feel entitled. That's number one. Number two, I will be disempowering you. You already had a resilience that went, was through the roof. You have the resilience of waking up 4 a.m., like my case, and going to school two hours away. As young as I was, that's a freaking resilience. How many pancakes can you have working four hours, uh, two hours to a specific location that are going to do that? So the problem is that as foreign aid comes in, what it actually does, it disempowers it, it dis- people. Okay. People lose the ability to be able to lead their own charge. Okay. It's an indirect of telling people that, look, you're shitty, you can't do this to yourself. I'm going to do it entirely for you.
1: That was Shadrach Frimpong, co-founder and CEO of Kokoa 360, an organisation that transforms farming communities and facilitates access to education and healthcare in rural Ghana. My name is Asanga Sam Ratna and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. I first heard Shadrach speak at a Perry World House event at the University of Pennsylvania just a few weeks ago and it really was a moment that stood out. I've been lucky enough to hear from a lot of young people doing amazing things, but Shadrach's talk really struck a chord with me. And I think partly because it was the first time I'd heard from someone from the affected area during innovative, self-sustaining, community-based solutions. And I know that's a lot of buzzwords, but it was this guy from rural Ghana taking full advantage of the tunes that had been given to him and building out this solution of running a community hospital um, girl school system that was self-sustained from the proceeds from his local cocoa Farm. And I think it's one thing to hear from someone working on problems halfway across the world who's come from a relatively privileged background. While that's important, I think it's amazing to be able to hear from someone from the developing community, having led the change uh, themselves. So I knew we've got to hear from this guy. So when Shadrach said he was back in Philly for one night before returning to Ghana, I scrambled our recording equipment in about 15 minutes and raced across campus to make sure we could sit down for a chat. So here is that chat. Uh, from everything from building Kakoa360, revamping international development, tackling corruption, finding your motivation, getting started on your idea and the importance of self-care in this work. Enjoy.
0: Well, my name is Shadrach, Shadrach from Pon I grew up in a small rural village in the western part of Ghana, um, about eight hours out from Accra. Um, for almost the first decade of my life, I grew up without electricity and running water, you know, really typical challenges of a rural area. Had to travel almost about two hours every day from my, 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 my village mad hat, my family's mad hat, to, to, to the village school. There were these challenges, but again, I was very privileged. And when I was going to high school, I had the Ghana Cocoa Board Scholarship because my parents are cocoa farmers. I had a Ghana Cocoa Board Scholarship, long story short, from the village that allowed me to be able to go to high school in the city. And in high school, what turned out to be a difficulty became a blessing in a disguise, in the sense that my high school counselors were worried that even though I was doing very well, I couldn't find funding to sponsor my medical education after high school. Mm. Um, so started exploring SAT. Long story short, I took it and ultimately ended up here at Penn. ended right. up at the University of Pennsylvania on a full ride. Um, but that's been my trajectory. And so growing up, in a rural community with so much poverty, with so many challenges that also pretended to, and you know, were sort of like a gateway to all the health challenges within the community. I mean, personally, when I was a young, when I was probably, I think age nine, I had an infection on my legs. And because my parents were not financially sound, we were poor, it took several months before I could access the nearest health facility. They could take me to the nearest health facility, which was about five hours away. Yeah. By the time we went there, the doctors were like, it's too late, we might have to amputate these legs. I mean, and that health challenge and seeing so many of my family members die month after month, you know, from many preventable diseases, I knew that something had to be done. And I would always carried that fire in my belly, even all through my undergraduate studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so Thankfully, when I was graduating from Penn in my uh, senior year, I got a President's Engagement Prize, which comes with Mm $150,000. I mean, and, you know, every human being, at least for us young people in our generation, you get to a point in your life, no matter how young you are, that you have to make the choice to whether you want to keep doing something for yourself or you want to do something that will impact the lives of others. You come at that crossroad. Mm -hmm. And that was for me in 2015. I had to make the choice of whether... I was going to take my Ivy League education, keep earning some money in America, mm. and go to medical school, mm. or to put, to put up my medical school plans on hold, forfeit my international student F1 visa, and really go back home to Ghana to, 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 to get this running. Ultimately, I made a decision to go back home to Ghana, right. and I haven't looked back since. So I went back to Ghana, and the whole reason why I went to Ghana was trying to fix the health system that I grew up, that I saw to be broken. Mm-hmm. So I'm very passionate about rural health systems. Mm-hmm. I think that health systems are there, as they are right now are merely, people just take urban health systems and urban health systems, as we keep seeing, are merely just a chain of hospitals and clinics. Mm-hmm. And we try to take that model and we try to transplant it into rural areas. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't work because you're talking about a different demographic. So when I went to my community, I knew number one, we wanted to do something that's a rural health system, meaning it's very distinct from an urban health system. And so for us, our health system is a tuition-free girls' school that provides an education that's very steeped in health literacy. We provide edu- tuition-free education for uh, the population that we see to be the most vulnerable target of risky health behaviors, which is young girls. Young girls are more likely to contract infectious disease and they're also more likely to knowingly or normally spread these infections. Um, So we we have a tuition-free girls school that's very steeped in health literacy as a curriculum. And then secondly, we have uh, a community health facility Mm. that we built. And for us, these were really core areas of our rural health system. Now, beyond that, we have to think about sustainability, Mm. right? We can't always forever depend on donor funding. Mm. And growing up, I see how, you know, I've been on the beneficiary end, nonprofits coming into the community and then you know, they do things and it's not sustainable and the community later has to pay back in a negative way for it. So we talked about sustainability and you know, we, as a cocoa growing community, we decided to you know, have a 40 acre cocoa farm. Right. In exchange of the tuition free services, in exchange of the subsidized medical services, people in my community work minimum of three hours yeah. on the community cocoa farm. Then once we get the harvest from the farm, we take that and we use it to you know, pay teachers, nurses, and really sustain operations and keep things going. Right. Yeah, So that's the model we have in place. I'm very passionate about rural health systems, very, very passionate about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm also passionate about the fact that usually I think that nonprofits has been approached from a very long, wrong angle for a very long time. Okay. Everyone wants to give a band-aid, you know, just do everything for free, you know, just give money. I think that people have to contribute something like not just contribute something they have to be involved for the they have to be involved and they have to be responsible for the sustenance of whatever um interventions that have been provided yeah
1: you mentioned that the younger generation has a responsibility to give back um where did that kind of passion or drive for impact start was that something you had since you were you were a young child, or was that a particular moment that struck you and you wanted to, to make a difference? Or what, what inspired that? Yeah, I
0: think, you know, growing up in poverty, I've always had this fire in my belly. Like, I wanted to do something. Like, I'm, I, you know, in 2011, I always say this I became the first person from my village to attend college in the US, and that forever changed my life trajectory. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I knew that I became privileged, I had opportunities that I would have never had anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and just you know, thinking about the, the level of poverty, my community, people live on less, in, on less than a dollar a day. So for me, and also knowing that what I'm talking about is not something I've read, but something I've lived and something that my family is still living because my mm-hmm. family lives within the community. Mm-hmm. If my mom is sick, they have to travel about four or five hours to a sex health care. Mm-hmm. My younger sisters are more likely, I have, I'm a brother to four sisters, they're more likely to uh, get infectious diseases. And if they contract infectious diseases, I may not care right now, but so far as I'm related to them, it might get to me. Ebola starts in some in a rural community in Guinea. Mm-hmm. And everyone sits in America and is like, oh, you know, this is so sad that Guinea is going mm-hmm. through such a tough time. Oh my God, oh my God. Then the next day we wake up and we're like, oh shoot, we actually have to be protecting our bodies because there's Ebola in America already. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, so for some of us, for me, it came from you know, my personal challenges growing up. Right, I have all these scars on my legs because my legs, you know, I, when I got that infection many years ago, I wake up every day, I see these infections whenever I'm showering and that's, that just drives the fire in my belly. But I don't believe that if you don't have that kind of similar story, it's fine. You don't need to have grown up in abject poverty. Mm-hmm. I always tell people I have nothing to do with the fact that I was born in poverty. Mm-hmm. No one has anything to do with the fact that they are born in affluence. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates' daughter had nothing to do with the fact that she was born to Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. She just happened to come into the world. But right, you have to see that we as a human, we, we as a planet, mm-hmm. we are number one, one global village. Our, one thing that happens in Australia, might next, first, next thing be happening to someone in, in America. Right. Something that starts somewhere in Ghana, in rural Ghana, or in rural Congo, rural Nigeria, mm-hmm. might be hitting somewhere in New Zealand. Right. Like our problems are very intertwined. Mm-hmm. And so if you see something that's going wrong, and you're worried about it, thinking that we all live in a small global village mm-hmm. should move you to action. Right. Yeah, if you see something that you're not happy about, that enough should be your drive. Mm-hmm. Because like I always tell um, some of my mentees and people I'm privileged to get to know and you know, nurture them in their entrepreneurial journey, what I share with them is the fact that sometimes the very problem that you see, that you want to solve, initially, and you initially feel very strongly about, mm-hmm. It could could just be the only reason why you're on this earth. It might as well just be like literally the only reason why you were on this earth. Mm -hmm. Like people are trying to find their purpose and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But sometimes for some of us, we just find it very quickly. Mm -hmm. Else life wouldn't make sense. And some of these issues, when you find them, you are the only person whose experiences have led you up to that point. Mm -hmm. It could be climate change, it could be ocean cleanup, it could be anything. And when you find a, a problem, it makes you angry. That's enough motivation for you to fix it. Right. right. Even if you have a back, if you have a backstory, even the better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, so if you're if you're a young person and you you know you want to make a difference, but you don't know what issue or where to start, what do you what do you suggest doing?
0: Yeah, you know, the, some of the brilliant ideas always come from conversations. Right. Um, Interestingly, one of the things that I have realized in this work is that even for us, we're still iterating, we're still innovating every single day uh, in our work. And what I've realized is that some of the answers always come from the people that are going to be the beneficiaries. So if you're a young person, you have an idea, you don't know where to start, you don't don't, don't know what kind of issue to attack. Mm. The simplest question you should always ask for yourself, who and who do I care about? You just sit down, write down that. Who and who do I care about? It could be a group of people you visited in India when you met. It could be some Aboriginal, you know, um, or some Indigenous population somewhere in Australia that you met. These are people you're passionate about, and these are people you care about. It could be your mother. It could be your father. It could be, as well, yourself. What, who? The first, the question, who is so important. Who do I care about? Because the who helps you to find your why. Right. And once the who leads you to your why, you just have to sit down with whatever who. If it is yourself, you have to look at yourself and have that conversation. Just go into deep thought and be really asking, uh, what things am I good at? Mm. What have I done so far? Mm. What kind of issue in the world makes me angry? Honestly, the things that usually makes us angry, we don't, we don't like to see on TV. Mm. Those are where we usually find to be the fires in our bellies. Right. So if, the, if, the, if it's an individual person, then you do the introspection. Mm-hmm. But if, the, if your who is actually other people, that's even easier. You go to them and you talk to them. Right, right,
1: right. So you've you found your why. You've, you've talked to the people that um, kind of inspired you or the, the, the issue that's affecting them. If you have an idea, how do you, how do you get that up and running? What, what, what should you do if you have an idea to solve it?
0: Uh, you know, I think that the, one of the biggest misconceptions is that you have to have a million dollars and have to have raised some venture capital or some non-profit foundation money. Look, before we even started uh, Coco 360, as it is right now, which we had seed funding from Penn, 150K. Mm. As an undergrad, I think in my sophomore, no, in my freshman year, I started students with Healthy Africa. And we didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. I just met a couple of my friends. Every time, like here, I, I, I was living with my African friends, a bunch of Ghanaian friends and other friends from Nigeria and dif- different African countries, and every time we we'll meet, we'll be angry, we'll be, just talking about, we'll be complaining about things back home, we'll complain about the state of healthcare. like what the freaking hell did just, a cholera pandemic just happened and the government couldn't solve it, oh my God, the government is so damn, like we kept complaining every single day, then one day we met and I said, guys, every day we we're complaining, yeah. what can we do? So. It was just a conversation. So we didn't need money. The money was. So when you have an idea, the first thing you do, find people who yeah. care about your idea too. Could be your friends. And that's always, I mean, relatively easier for you to find people to, to share the burden with. Mm-hmm. Once you find people, your next, your first source of fundraising is going to be the skills that you individually have. Mm-hmm. So when we started students for Holy Africa in my fresh in my freshman year, our first source of funding was the guy who was good at web development. It was the guy who was good at you know, uh, creating website content. It was, a good at, it was the guy who was good at uh, creating um, audio and video recordings like this. Yeah. Like everyone had a skill set. Right. It was a guy who knew how to write grants and whatever. Mm. Um, and it, it was me who knew how to not fear, but just reach out to random big names and see if they would ever reply. I didn't even care whether they would reply or not. Um, So uh, that was our first source of funding. It wasn't physical cash, but it was important. And we were able to leverage on that. I mean, we built a clinic in Nigeria. Yeah, in the small circles, we didn't need, I remember the Penn students raised like $1,000. The African students at Kono raised like $1,000. Different, different things, we came together, we did something. So it doesn't always have to be big. Mm -hmm. You have to start. You know, boldness has genius. You know, I don't know whether it's Van Gogh or someone who said, made that quote. But boldness has genius. If you have any idea, you start. Mm-hmm. And starting doesn't mean implementing. Right. That's the mis- mistake people make. You have to differentiate between starting and implementing. If you have an idea, starting could just be as well as picking up your laptop and pulling up, trying to write up your business plan ideas right. on, paper, on, on a Word document. That's starting. Right. Starting could just be as texting a friend to say, hey, I have this idea. It would be nice to catch up and talk about it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be on the ground digging and getting ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So once you've got it going, I know that this can sometimes be hard for, for people working on something they're passionate about um, if they start hitting roadblocks. So obviously it's not gonna be smooth, smooth sailing all the way. How did you kind of overcome that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was easier to overcome. No, it wasn't easier to overcome, but in hindsight, and now looking back, it was relatively easier because if it wasn't easier to overcome, I would have probably quit. Um, but we were able to overcome it because because of the community's involvement. I think that things are much more easier to do when you know you don't bear the load alone. Right. Right. Everyone tries to be like a superstar or just one person wants to be recognized for everything and people try, you have leaders who try to micromanage, you have entrepreneurs who want to stay in their little corner and cramp and do everything together. No one ever does it alone. So if even if you look at a lot of companies, look at even Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, he started with his roommates mm. who later... Sue him in the law courts, uh, you know, asking for um, co-founder rights and all that stuff. It was clear he didn't do it alone. Mm. Even though he pioneered the idea, he came up with it. Same thing. What has helped as easy to do in terms of for us is the community involvement. Mm. My community is hundred percent, absolutely involved in the. They've been involved in the construction of the school and the hospital. They've been absolutely involved in the running. They're involved in everything. So if I have a problem, I just go to them. Right. My like, guys, this is a problem we're having. I'm so tired, and I think if we don't solve this problem, I'll probably give up. Yeah. They're going to be like, no. Why? No, no, no. We're not going to come this far and give up. I can give this amount of money. I can talk to this person for you. I can do this. I can do this. I can do it. People come up with a million things that individually they can collectively do. But if you, one person tries to do that, you'll probably be earlier than that. Mm. So it's always, it's important you have to find a community. A community could just be a co-founder, mm. it could just be a group of friends, it could just be, you need someone who shares the load. Right. That's the easiest, yeah, you can't carry all the load.
1: Right.
0: If you carry all the load, you're going to give up. Mm. Yeah.
1: Of course. So I want to go back to um, when you first came to America. What was that experience like, coming to, coming to a completely different country? and um, you mentioned the importance of community. Did you, did you ever feel isolated alone? And how'd you, how'd you overcome that?
0: Yeah, I mean, coming to America was tough. You know, different challenges, different... Uh, like in my country, people use that word fat sparingly. They call girls fat. That's the norm of this girl, this girl, she's fat. In America, you say, call a girl fat dude. You're screwed. Like you don't do that in America, right? So it's like different, all these different Barriers and whatnot, And again, I came to America as a black man. If someone sees me on the street and they want to show me racial prejudice, they don't care if I'm African or not. The first thing they see is a black man. So I had to deal with racial undertones and whatever. And it was tough. But I guess it became easier because, you know, Penn has a very strong international student community. Uh, so the International Student and Scholar service, they had like all these programs. They introduced me to Philadelphia. And even beyond that, I later found out that the African Student Association at Penn are very strong. Tons of Ghanaians. Like right now where I am, I was with a bunch of Ghanaians just sitting there having a good time. So, and earlier this year, we just realized that there was a Ghanaian kid who was transferred to Penn. And we just texted him like, hey, you need a place to bond, come. And he's having the time of his life down there. (laughs) He's having fun, he sees his own people just bonding. So, that made the transition a bit easier. But even so, there were more times that, you know, I mean, during Thanksgiving everyone and their mama is coming for them and you know, you don't have anywhere to go. You probably have to eat at a Wawa or Boston Market, right, right. right? And those days it gets lonely, you get homesick, you want to go home. But hey, you have to remember why you're here.
1: Yeah. You're
0: here for the education. So sometimes I just pick up my, I, when I'm always down in those moments, I pick up my phone, talk to my parents and you know, try to regain my sanity mm. or Skype them, thanks to technology. Right. Um, Sometimes for them it's tough because they're in the village and the internet is very horrible, right. like next to nothing. Mm-hmm. So that means I have to plan ahead so they can go to the city and we can Skype. Wow. But we've always made it work.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. you just have to keep in mind what matters,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. How, how were you so motivated um, throughout high school? To get to Penn is quite an achievement. What kind of drove that? I know you touched on, you know, your upbringing, um, but was there anything specifically that, that drove that? How, how did you keep motivated?
0: I mean, how, another reason I keep motivating is just reminding myself that talent is universal, but opportunity to attain the kind of education I'm attaining right now is not. Mm-hmm. Right? So, even in high school, I knew that. I knew that there were many people in my village who were probably smarter, but because their parents don't have financials or because they didn't get a scholarship I had, right? right? Scholarship is merit based. Mm-hmm. But because they didn't have it, they couldn't get that kind of high school education I had. Same thing coming to Penn, right? And so I've always kept that up at the back of my mind. I value the opportunity I have. And for me, I always ask myself, look, how do I leverage? How do I give off my very best with this opportunity I have so I can leverage the importance of the, my hard work? Because if I came to Penn and I was a... Douchebag, just always sleeping around and graduating with a 2.5 GPA, bro. They're not gonna give me the President's Prize. It's yeah. not gonna happen. Yeah. Like, Amy Godman's not gonna give you her money. <laughs> no, she's not, it's not. Yes, but coming and putting in the hard work and doing well, mm. earned that. And that way I was able to do, give to more people. But I, I always think about it. You know, my classmates who I grew up in the community, the fact that I've been able to come this far, and now they are in the village, they have like four kids, mm. same age. We are talking about people who same age. Mm. But they have four kids, they go to farm, they're so poor, they live on less than a dollar a day, right? It's a, very, it's a world of difference. I'm sitting here in a suit and tie and all that stuff. Yeah. So that motivates me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have my internal motivation with my own challenges and my legs and the scars, mm-hmm. but every time I think about that too, I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. people don't have that. Mm-hmm. You have it. There are many people who want, I tell my pen friends all the time, Yes, you can complain, pen is hard and everything, but you also have to value what an incredible opportunity it is. Mm-hmm. It's truly a miracle to be in this place. Mm-hmm. Like, people will kill and die for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And there are people who even, though they can't kill and die, it's their aspiration. I always tell people, if you ever want to see how much you value pen, it's okay, just go watch YouTube. Go to YouTube and look at pen YouTube videos, or go to Facebook and just look at the, the, the comments on The pen, Facebook pictures, and videos. And you see people whose dream is pen, Mm. so they've been commenting Mm. how they hope to come here and study one day. You're here. You're like, you're already here. So that's that's what keeps me motivated, you know. Just realizing that people don't have the opportunity I have. And I have to be able to use my education to to influence the lives of these people positively.
1: Mm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, man. Like, it's very raw. You you were at Penn, you saw this issue with with rural health back home.
0: Yeah.
1: And the President's Engagement Prize came up. How did you connect the dots between the two? Did you have an idea in your head already, or how did you develop it?
0: Yeah, honestly, I think that it was just mainly from, you know, situations that I saw. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm a brother to four sisters, so I could see the health challenges that they had uniquely as young women in the community. So I knew that, and most of the time, the issues I saw was that if they leave school, then they tend to, like, you know, become so vulnerable to, like, all these health challenges, right? And so if we could keep them in school and provide them a quality education that is also, like, helping them to stay healthy, Mm -hmm. that would be huge. That's the first thing. Second thing was a health facility. Yeah. And for me, these two things were very easy because at the time, I was also considering medical school. So I had interest in medicine and all that, and I knew that one of my community's biggest health challenges was uh, the healthcare system, Right? Um, So, it was easier to, you know, tell myself that, okay, if I'm going to get this amount of money, Mm. then I'm going to go do this. Mm. And so, even before I won the award, I convinced my community to give up 50 acres of land. You think about that. How it would have felt if I didn't get the money. I have to go back and tell them, I'm sorry you gave up land, but we didn't get it. But I so believed in my people and their resilience and they were just wonderfully amazing people. And the fact that if we won the grant, we could do so much good together. Right. right.
1: Yeah. Penn gives you $150,000. What, what was your next steps? Because that's, that is a lot of money. And were, were you unsure what to do with it? Did you have a plan going into it?
0: I mean, I think one of the best things that happened to me after I won the prize, like, I had like four Ghanian friends um, who were also like, three of them were Penn alone. Uh, two were in the class of 2015, one had graduated in 2013, and another, the other guy, the other Ghanaian guy, was a graduate of Swarthmore. Right. So we were living in the same place when I went there, where these guys had incredible opportunities. Some were supposed to work for Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. Maryland, uh, Bank of America, Stanchart, no typical Wharton, and that kind of, you know. But they gave it all up. It's said, shadow could not go to the village with you wow. to get this app. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made a world of difference for me. Um, so that was the first thing, I formed a team, right? They became my team. One of them, Isaac Opoku, was director of creativity. Uh, Julian became finance director. Jacob became, Jacob became um, director of partnerships and fundraising. And then Max also had the same partnerships and fundraising. And I was a fundraiser CEO, and we have seen everything. So first thing, you have to form a team. Like you don't wanna share the burden. You don't have all the bedding, you have to share it. It's absolutely, absolutely critical. So we formed it. I formed a team, after forming a team, my team and I decided to go ahead and then I'll register something, right? Mm-hmm. We went to register the organization, incorporated yeah. just so we can get some tax, yeah. you know, exemptions yeah. and whatnot. So that was the next step, registered a non-profit organization. We went back home, registered another uh, NGO based in the country, then we got to work. Yeah, we got to work. Started looking at what has worked, what hasn't worked. Started talking to people. We spent like about three weeks doing that—three weeks to one month—brutally looking at different organizations, what they've done, how can we do things differently. Right. Innovation is the word. You don't want to keep doing the same thing. You know what do they call it? Crazy and madness is doing the same thing yeah. over and over again, expecting different results. So we wanted to innovate. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel, mm. and. So we spent time doing that. And once we had our results, taking through the innovation in terms of the cocoa farm, taking through um, the fact that we, we, we even, even though we're talking about healthcare system, we have to have a school, but the school for the most vulnerable target, that's one way, a huge preventive aspect of the model. We talked through all that, did the background research. And yeah, we got to work, started construction and everything. Um, and it's been an upward <laughs> way from there.
1: You mentioned that uh, you convinced uh, the village to give up, what, 40, 50 acres, um, mm-hmm. even before you applied. Yeah. Uh, how did you approach that? Did you, did you pitch it to the whole community? Um, what was that process like? Yeah. What, was, what was the reception like as well?
0: Yeah, I think it was a reception of excitement. And honestly, my community had, you know, we have so much land, but we also know we're poor. So I spoke to my dad. I told him, this is an idea I have. Can you go, because I needed that letter as a backing letter for my application Mm. for the President's Prize. But I talked to my dad. He went to go talk to the chief. He talked to the chief that this is what my son wants to do. Mm. If he wins this grant, can we have a supporting letter? And they were like, sure. So the village elders wrote a letter stating that they would give this much. Um, But yeah, that, that made a world of difference because it showed the community's commitment to what we are trying to do. And yeah, I think it's also easy because I'm from the community. Yeah. They don't see me as an outsider. Yeah. They know that even if I request land, in my family is still there. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, right? If an outsider comes and you give them land, for the next minute, they're probably like selling it to someone else and leaving, and you never hear of them again. Mm. But I can sell to it. I can't sell to anyone. I have family members in the community.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Right? If I sell to the community, like, it's not. So there was that level of trust. Right. Um, also because I personally grew up in the community. Right, right. They see me as their own, yeah.
1: And this community-driven model that you're implementing, where did you get the the idea for that? And secondly, you mentioned that traditional kind of aid is a bit of a band-aid solution. Why why exactly do you think that is? Um, so there's kind of two questions there, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think, that, so the first, I, I, I mean, got the idea from the people. Mm-hmm. Um, actually got the idea, I think, from the people and it was refined by my experience this year. You know, we knew we wanted to build a girls' school and a, and a clinic, and you know, and a health facility. We thought these were the two challenges in the community, and then the whole the community came up. We had a community um, deva meeting where we asked how we could self-sustain what we were trying to do, because you always want the answers to come from the people you're trying to serve. It lets them have a sense of ownership. Um, so when we did that, you know, one of the old one of the village old women, about I think in the late 60s, raised up in her her hand and say, said, look. We've given you 50 acres of land. What if you use 10 acres of the land to blow up a campus and use about 40 acres mm. to, to develop a cocoa farm? Mm. That every week, all of us here work on an agreed number of hours, minimum number of hours. And then, I don't know if there's harvest cycle will use a profit. So that really came from them, mm. And that was confirmed when I visited um, the Clinic for Special Children. Uh, in rural Pennsylvania, Strasburg, rural Pennsylvania. It started by a, a, an amazing physician, Dr. Martin Holmes, who did his residency at Penn Medicine. Yeah. Decided to forgo all the glamour and excitement of city life and went to rural Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Lived with a community, uh, rural Strasburg, that is primarily Amish and Mennonite. Okay. So he lived with them and then he built it. And I went there, it was a fantastic model. Every mm-hmm. year the community has benefit auctions, they sell some of their farm produce, their corn, mm. some of their farm, dairy milk, and all that. Mm. And they give the money to the health facility. And when they go for treatment, it's so extremely subsidized. Mm. I thought that was genius. Mm. So, try to take the same idea. What do we also have in my community? Cocoa, rubber, and all that. True to the people, the people suggested Cocoa. We went with that. Now, secondly, why I think band aid is problematic is because, look, if I come to your community and you're poor, even though you're poor, you're still thriving. Mm -hmm. You're going to farm, you're taking care of yourself, you're showering. It's tough, but you're pushing. Mm -hmm. It might be as tough as anything, but yet still, you're trying your best to push. If I come and I make everything absolutely free for you, Mm -hmm. I tell you, you don't ever have to worry about doing anything to keep these services. Mm -hmm. You feel entitled. That's number one. Number two, I will be disempowering you. You already had a resilience that was through the roof. You had a resilience of waking up 4 a.m., like my case, and going to school two hours away. As young as I was, that's a resilience. How many pen kits can you have working four hours, uh, two hours to a specific location that are going to do that? So the problem is that as foreign aid comes in, what it actually does, it disempowers it, it dis- people. Okay. People lose the ability to be able to lead their own charge. Okay. It's an indirect of telling people that, look, you're shitty. You can't do this to yourself. I'm going to do it entirely for you.
1: Okay.
0: So that's where the problem comes. Trust, Trust me. This nature of work, non-profit work, has more unintended negative consequences than, 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 than intended uh, positive consequences. Yeah.
1: So what can um, these large organisations do to change? Or is it even a, a thing where we need more organisations like yours, which are more organic, community-driven? Or is there still a place for those large NGOs to, to, to make an impact?
0: I think there's a place for these large NGOs. They have the highest sources of capital. Mm. They're very well established. They just have to be willing to partner with these grassroots organizations. Maybe just fund them for them to execute. Mm. Because for you to execute very well, you have to be at a grassroots. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of big NGOs are just really just steeped in data, 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 data. We've written this article 10 years ago. It looks like this. Someone will talk about how they want to fix, they will sit on the panel in the street and I talk about how they want to fix rural healthcare in Tanzania, but they've never met a Tanzanian before. Yeah. So, like, you, you know, you have all these, and I think that's the easiest way they can integrate, work directly with this grassroots, maybe empower them with funding or whatever. And then also beyond that, help them scale up.
1: Mm.
0: UN has a lot of money, they can easily help in non-private healer uh, scale to as many communities as possible. That is a word. There's a distinction. We don't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're going to dress up and probably go to the minister of government and tell, them, tell him, Hi, Mr. Minister, we think you know, um, your, host, uh, your district um, is having a lot of challenges. right? And they can come up with these ideas and all that kind of stuff. But then it's going to become problematic if the grassroots organizations aren't actually the ones doing the work. Because the grassroots organizations are usually community based, they understand the solutions much more. Mm. And big organizations, while well, they're amazing, at some point become more administrative than actually impact implementing. Mm. So if you were to ask me, like, if you got a UN come and say, Shadow, again, this is two million dollars, mm. want you to scale into two communities in the next ten years, mm. I'm like, hell yeah, we'll do yeah, that. Yeah. Right? a um, question would they do it?
1: How can you inspire that action then? What can we do to get people like the UN to, to invest in people like you? It's, easily, it's easy,
0: data, data, data. Right. data. However, D-A-T-A, data. <laughs> yeah. Everyday based data. When we started our work, it was all about, you know, the, 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 the Tachi Philly story. Oh my God, this kid grew up in rural Ghana, mm-hmm. and he left his pen of Ivy League education, went back to help people. Mm-hmm. Those Tachi Philly stories are great. Mm-hmm. They will end you some few dollars from individual donations who are very individuals so are very committed, and those are extremely important, at least they've been for our work. But if you need these big organizations to come in, you have to have the data. You need to be backing everything with research. Mm-hmm. Look, our research shows that X, Y, Z, is why we can't, like right now, we recently like published, we recently had a student from Wharton come to our campus, Richard Stack, and he published an amazing research um, work research to back our work to show that actually our model is feasible and all that. Right. And you better believe uh, if I ever get a chance to meet the UN, I'm showing them that. Right. I'm showing that look we've done the research and this work is feasible. Right. Like uh, it's not this is a research. The research is published on Penn's website. Like you wow. see? Yeah. Right. The effects of an NGO development project in rural community in Takwa Burma in Western Ghana. Like boom. We have feasibility backing it. So now we have the data showing why we are doing what we are doing and how we can track impact and all these things. These guys will be listening they'll be ready to listen because you have data ready. Right, right. But if you go to them and it's just a touchy-feely, hey, I have this idea because I grew up, yeah, okay, sounds nice. Oh, we are sorry. We are sorry you went through all these difficulties. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to stop there. Yeah. So it's all about data. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to move them to action and inspire them to action is be evidence-based and be data-backed like mm-hmm. crazy.
1: Yeah. Right. So with the with the data-driven stuff, um, now more and more when, when people are donating and when people are looking at grant funding, they talk about administrative costs and people like, how many cents of my donation dollar is going to the cause? Mm. Um, I'm wondering, what is Coco360 doing about that? Is that? Do you think it's the most important thing? And, and secondly, when we talk about work in the developing world, mm-hmm. um, often people talk about Corruption, and when you're dealing with, probably not in your case, but yeah. partner organisations on the ground, money's getting lost. How do you kind of talk to that or deal with that when people bring that up?
0: Yeah, for us, how we do with it is just really telling people that look, and I, I show it to people. I tell people, look, I had an Ivy League education. Mm-hmm. For the past two years, I've never had a salary. I don't mm-hmm. pay myself. Mm-hmm. Like, right, I've sacrificed that. Like here, I'm staying in Philly. I'm sleeping on friends' couches. Right. But if I got it from Penn with my Ivy League degree and I got... I could have been having a nice job and been living a good life. Mm. So, yeah, we, we try to make that point really clear. And we also try to highlight the fact that we, we try to appropriate as much funding. If an organization is doing everything right, yeah. it should probably be spending like maybe... It, should, it shouldn't be spending no more, at least for an organization. It's in its beginner stages like ours, it shouldn't be spending more, no more than 5 to 10% of your budget. Yeah. on administrative costs, yeah. ninety plus percent should be going into um, direct impact. Mm-hmm. And that's important, because mm-hmm. you want to show that you're doing the work, and you're doing the work with people's money. Another direction that we've taken, we've taken two, direction, three direction, uh, two directions recently, the first one is that we, we show donors, and we tell donors that, look, it's okay if you want to give money for us to build a school and have it named after your family, that's awesome. But that building alone is going to cost 30K. The teachers who are going to teach in those rooms and make sure that the building is useful Mm. for the community, because they have to teach and teach these kids. Mm. Those teachers, Mm. we have to pay them too. Mm. And for us to pay them, each teacher is going to cost XYZ amount of money per month, a year. Four teachers is going to cost this much. Mm. And we give that to you too. So instead of giving just $30,000 for a building, you're probably going to end up giving 40K for the first year. And every other year, I have to commit 10K. So you you have to be that absolutely transparent, and be honest. The other approach that we've taken is that, I think that when sustainability works, when there are sustainability measures in place, then organizations could use their point of sustainability to push operations. Mm. Like case in point, when our cocoa farm is up and ready, the cocoa farm is what we're going to use to be paying teachers and our staff members. So that when funding comes in, we're going to use it to do their work. Right. Like, right, We're going to go hit impact directly. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how the organization thinks about it. But I agree with you, there's a lot of rot in the system. Mm-hmm. And honestly, not everyone does this work because of they're genuinely interested about the solution yeah. they're trying to target. People have ulterior motives as well, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: so is there any way to, to combat that on, on the ground? I think it's accountability, right? It's, it's, if a donor
0: gives money to an organization, it's just really being accountable, you can become accountable in a couple of ways. For instance, actually visiting the organization on the ground and seeing their work in action. And you realize the best organizations always have visitor programs Mm. because they want their investors and their donors to come and see firsthand what they're doing. Mm. And we we recently started our visitor program. Even long before we started, we've always opened our arms to welcome anyone who wants to visit. You get your ticket, whatever. We'll pick you up from the nearest town. We'll give you good food to eat. You live within the community. See our work firsthand. When people know that their work is being seen firsthand, they don't mess up with funding, right? They're going to execute as they ought to execute, the right, excellent way, because they sort of have a big brother looking over their shoulder. Mm. The second thing is accountability through financial reporting. So you have to account through financial reporting. You have to also account through board of directors and all these things. Mm. If you account through financial reporting, your financial report has to get to your board of directors. All of them have to review it minus you the founder they have to review it and then they'll look at it and be like okay we think this is great Mm. this deserves to be continually pushed on every other year
1: Mm.
0: and far as that has been working yeah
1: we're working so hard on on the on this organization i know this is common across across the not-for-profit spaces that people are quite passionate about something they can almost get to the point of, of burnout and also you can take the issue to heart almost, to the, to the point where you, where you blame yourself um, for the issue. And you know, you talked about this, differentiating yourself from that. How did you kind of maintain mental health and not hit burnout?
0: Yeah, honestly, I'm a very strong Christian. That's how I try to stay, try to stay grounded. Mm-hmm. So I pray a lot, meditate a lot. And I need a human connection. I'm always with my family or I'm always with friends, just goofing around, mm-hmm. trying to be myself. Um, but yeah, mental health is extremely important. The burden to do this kind of work is very, very intense. Mm. Um, and also, I just learned to give up some things. Like, I can't manage everything. Mm. Yeah. Can't apply for all grants. I'm not going to be successful at all grants. Yeah. Like understanding that, having my own little diary, all these things are very clear. Yeah. Has always, yeah, been, been, been helpful. Yeah. Mm.
1: You've been recognised on the on the global stage quite deservedly for your work. Um, with the Clinton Global Initiative and others. So when you're when you're in these spaces, you're around the influencers, the people with, with the big bucks. Um, also, if you if you're talking to government, what, what are you telling them? What what are you what are you advocating for? What
0: well, I'm telling about, I mean, when I'm in government, I try to tell them that there is an opportunity for the public and the private sector to work together. We could be a private non-profit organisation, but we'll, if the Ghana government partners with our clinic, then we could possibly scale it up to a hospital. We could be a, a tuition-free girls' school. That's public. That's private.
1: Mm-hmm. But if we're able
0: to publish, uh, you know, partner with the Ghana Education Service, then a lot of magic happens. Mm. And I try to easily tell them that, look, these girls and these kids, where they live, whether they're living in, within the village or they're living under somewhere in a forest,
1: mm.
0: they're still Ghanaians mm. They deserve the very best. Yeah.
1: And in terms of uh, telling your story, was that something you always good at? Was public speaking something that came naturally?
0: No, I always share this story. When I came to Penn I was a shy kid. <laughs> yeah, I battled like with I've battled it in complex like for a very long time. I think that's like very, very typical of people who grew up in poverty. You get a chance to come to Penn, you struggle with imposter syndrome, inferiority complex, you don't feel you belong and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, all through college I got the opportunity. I remember very well I used to speak for to accepted our uh, prospective and accepted students, as a member of the college cognoscenti, right. and that allowed me to like just open my mouth and talk.
1: Right.
0: And over time, I realized oh, I actually like talking about things I'm passionate about. Yeah, if something I'm passionate about, yeah, <laughs> everything else can wait. Even right. food can wait. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so, so you mentioned medical sc- medical school quite a bit. Uh, what, what's the kind of next steps for you? Uh, I mean,
0: as you speak, I'm currently like, going through the process of, sort of you know submitting applications and yeah. seeing how things go. I'm hoping sometime early next year, if all is good and God is good, I should be coming back for interviews. Um, but yeah, we'll see. It's good to know with school because I I mean, I realized very simply that I couldn't solve the problems that I wanted to solve only at a population level.
1: Right, right.
0: For me to do that very well, I'll have to also understand my patients at the bedside, know the clinical staff. I made a decision to go back to school, Yeah. Right
1: quickly on that you've been able to now leave the organization mm-hmm. it's thriving um without you um kind of on the ground on a day-to-day basis how did you how did you manage to do that and how do you think um say if someone founds founds a project or an organization how can they make sure that they've built something which they can hand it hand over to someone else um, to have less than involved
0: you know, I said this I probably at the, the Perry World House event. Mm-hmm. The greatest mark of leadership is that something can continue without you. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest test of leadership. You can be around and people will still be inspired to action. Um, and, you know, I achieved that by making, when everyone joins our team, whether it's volunteer or whatever, I tell them, mm-hmm. whatever is going on here is not about me. Mm-hmm. It's a greater call and you, it's about you, it's about everyone. You have to see it as your own baby. That's been very phenomenal, and it's worked. I mean, we have an incredible, incredible director of development and partnerships who manages every team member, and, you know, she does a phenomenal job. Um, But that's what I did. It was foundational. It was very, 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 you know, you could say in the subconscious or in the gradual scheme of things, you could say it's not so concrete. Like, it's not something you actually, like, make up your mind to do. But if you are able to make your team and your staff members know that you always got their back, they will also get your back. Right. To know that, to let your staff members know that this is something that's more than, that's honestly like more than an idea or more than money or more than anything. It's so important that you have to wake up every day going to do go, it. Mm. The magic happens. Right. Yeah.
1: Cool. I've got three final questions. Mm. Um, firstly, If someone wants to get involved with uh, COCO360, you mentioned the International Visitor Program. Yeah. Um, How can they do that?
0: Yeah, so if you're at at Penn, easy peasy. You apply for the International Internship Program and they'll match you with us so you can get some funding, obviously. But if you're not at Penn or even if you're at Penn and you don't get that kind of grant, you can always... There's a visitor program. You can reach out to us, uh, uh, info at coco360.org, or you can go on our website and contact us. Um, once you contact us you send us your your resume or your CV and you tell us what you think what you're very skilled in maybe you might want to come and handle all all our media and communication stuff you want to be taking videos and you might be so good in art stuff that you might want to come and be creating infographics and pitch decks and taking videos taking photos and creating really media stuff someone might be good and just very good at communications you know and developing partnerships you might just come and be like handling our call center being engaging with donors thanking them and See if they can give every year. Like, you know, you contact us with what you're good at. And only that, I mean, because it's a visitor program and it's a volunteer program, mm-hmm. you have to probably, like, bear the cost.
1: Right. Like, you have
0: to be taking care of uh, your meals, um, contribute something a little probably towards accommodation. Mm-hmm. You have to fly yourself into the country. Right. Like, literally, you have to take care of yourself. What we will secure is we'll make sure you're safe and sound. You're always okay. Right. I mean, Ghana is... A, Ghana is literally the beacon of democracy in Africa. literally the most peaceful country on the continent, so you don't have to worry about anything. But we'll make sure you have a blast. You have a great yeah. time. Cool. Yeah.
1: Second last, uh, are there any kind of books, films, resources um, that have inspired you or you would recommend for people, uh, young people in the impact space?
0: Yeah, I am a very strong Christian. If anyone's listened to this and they're Christians, I'll tell them, first of all, like, yo, bro, you got to read that Bible. Like, yeah, so... Yeah, I read it a lot, yeah, it's, it's, it's my, as a Christian, it, it's, it keeps me grounded, it keeps yeah. me very focused, and yeah. I never get too much into my head, and I realize that what I'm doing is not about me,
1: right.
0: yeah, but some of the, book, another book that has really helped me is uh, uh, Simon Sinek's, like, started Why, right. right, that's a great leadership book, Emphasizes on connecting with your why, why are you doing what you're doing? Knowing that is going to make you help you push through some of the very most difficult moments, mm-hmm. and uh, that book and the other the other guy I like reading his books. I think one of the world's like greatest leaders in a very long time, John Wooden. John Wooden, you know, has a ridiculous, fantastic, amazing uh, NCAA NCAA winning streak right, right, when he was at um, was it UCLA? I think so, okay. um, but. Yeah, that guy, like, I read, I try to consume every material. He's dead, <laughs> unfortunately. He, he was about, John Wooden was, at, Coach Wooden was about, I think, and, you know, people you can still find some of his materials online. Right. But John Wooden was, he was, um, so he was born in
1: 1910.
0: Yeah. And then he died. I'm just trying to find the age at which he died. But, you know, just look up John Wooden, his material. He died at the age of 99. Okay. That's how old this guy was. Wealth of wisdom. He published a lot of books about leadership. I consume everything. Um, And yeah, I literally tried to practice his leadership principles. They're very practical. Mm. If your team member messed up, Mm. what do you do? Do you rebuke them in front of everyone? Mm. Or are you humble and kind enough to call them, to tell them, hey, I want to talk to you later? And one-on-one tell them I wasn't happy with what you did. I know your potential. I know you're an amazing person. You can do better. Like, this guy literally teaches all this practical stuff in his leadership book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there are all these other leadership stuff out there. Everyone is like, okay, this is the next big thing. Oh, Elon Musk, all these. I am very fundamental. I'm very big on the basics, right? You have to get the basics covered. You have to be extremely grounded to who you are as your core. That's why I mentioned the Bible first as a Christian. Your religion is what, if you're, not a, if you're not a religious person, whatever helps you to stay grounded, right, right. you have to tap into it. Like, in your difficult days, it will push you through. Mm. Beyond that, you want to find people who are just respected in every right. Mm. Like, they have a track record, and they are leaders in every way. they they led in their lives, relationary. They weren't cheating on their wives. Mm. Someone could be a good leader, you know, And they they could lead your company to get millions of dollars and whatever, but they don't have integrity. And John Wooden is just, I did that research to find this guy lived 99 years old. Mm. After his wife died, never had a wife.
1: Mm.
0: Like, every other year he was going to place flowers on his wife's tombstone. He was sitting at where he first met at his wife. Almost every, like, principled integrity. Mm. Mm. And... He was, an, he was in an era of racism, but this guy wasn't racist. Mm. He was welcoming all these different NBA, uh, UC, uh, NCAA players on his team. They, they went on to become some of the best mm. uh, NBA players in history. Karim Abdul-Jabbar and all these people. But yeah, these are two books that I value a lot. And honestly, I don't support too much reading of leadership books. Right. I think that once you find a leadership book that vibes with you, that's it. That becomes your holy grail. You go back to it every time because the more you read and you read that particular book, you get to digest and get everything out of it and you begin to embody it. Mm-hmm. When you tend to read so many, mm-hmm. so the, the, the notion is quality over quantity. Right. Quality. Just find one good book. Mm-hmm. Read it. Absorb the philosophy. Boom. That's it. Stop reading so many leadership books out yeah. there. Yeah. If you decide to do Simon Sinek, that's okay. John Wooden, that's okay. Maybe one or two. Stop. Yeah. Then Tie into your, uh, your deepest core, what keeps you awake. And then beyond that, the books that you want to read are books in your mm-hmm. field. Try to become an expert in your field. Right. I, I have gazillions of books about rural health care, mm-hmm. about rural health systems, mm-hmm. about health systems. I try to read what people have tried to do in the past. Mm-hmm. And as I'm reading, I read it a skeptical mind. Mm-hmm. What could they have done differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, try to be an expert in your field. Right. And you know, I, motivation is always going to come from within. You could read million motivational books, watch all the motivational videos, boy oh boy, you to still procrastinate. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, that's a really important point. Quality over quantity. And lastly, uh, is, is there anything else you would like to add or something you'd like to say, given that um, you know, the people listening out there, young people, they're passionate, they want to make a difference. Yeah, is there anything anything you'd like to say?
0: Yeah, I want to say that look, our generation. We hold a single. We 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 hold so much power to, to make so much change. Mm-hmm. There's so. I mean, it, it it might sound like jargon or what people typically hear. But if you see something that makes you mad, do something. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, if you see something that is not doesn't make you happy, do something. And do doesn't mean go fix it. Mm-hmm. Do something. Talk to friends. How can we do this? How can we work around it? Get angry. Be angry at some of the things that are going on in the world. And secondly, treat everything with love. Like love everyone. Like right, it's a very difficult world as it stands right now. Mm. No matter the color of your skin, no matter where people are from, genuinely care and love people, mm. um, and be nice. And also, when I always tell people this, that when you get to the top, make sure to send the ladder back down. Like be kind. Mm. I'm strapped for time, but I'm here, right? Mm. I haven't eaten, but I still make the time. Yeah. Like no, you have to make it up. Like. But sometimes it gets people get so you know arrogant, and when they get to the top and they're doing some of these things. Um, but yeah, that's what I tell people: you live, you live a life of love, humility, and be change-driven. Mm. I think passion is a very fleeting word. You know, everyone's passionate about everything, mm. but you have to be change-driven. That's the right way. If you see something you don't like it, mm. dare to change it. Um, yeah, and that's, that's all I, I've got to say. And if anyone was ever wants to come and visit us in Ghana, yeah, go to coco360.org, www.coco360.org. Check out, out our work, or you can look me up, Shadrach Repon, to lead you to our website.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, get in touch. If I can help with anything, let me know. Um, but, yeah, most importantly, if you ever are interested in the kind of work I do, around education, health equity, and just in general, I think through innovative health systems in rural areas, I'll be happy to talk about them. Um, If you're out there, you're a founder and a donor, your parents got money? (laughs) Yeah, hit me up, let's talk. But yeah, if you're ever in Ghana, or if you ever want to visit Ghana and volunteer at our work, please get in touch. Let's make it happen. We'd love to see you and host you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for listening to our second episode of Lantern. That again was Shadrach Frimpong. And you can find more information on COCOA 360 and their mission to facilitate education and healthcare within farming communities globally in the show notes, as well as all the authors, reports and films that Shadrach mentioned. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more uh, people across the globe. If you can't wait for more, episode three will be live across all our platforms in two weeks' time, so that's on Sunday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast, or wherever you get uh, your podcasts. You can also keep up to date um, with the latest content we're pushing out across our social media, so that's Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore. So that's one word, Project Lantern underscore. And of course, on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us at all, or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at any time on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're so happy to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Till next time, stay awesome.